Experience the all-new Mazda CX-60 at Joe Duffy Mazda from October 17th to 22nd for an exclusive test drive. Mazda's first plug-in hybrid SUV is also the most powerful and luxurious we have ever built. Test drive it at Joe Duffy Mazda Exit 5 M50, October 17th to 22nd. New Mazda CX-60 plug-in hybrid, crafted in Japan. Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Space junk. In February of 2009, two satellites orbiting at speeds of almost 17,000 miles an hour collided at a height of 482 miles over Siberia. A U.S. communications satellite, Iridium-33, collided with a Russian military satellite called Cosmos-2251. The collision turned the satellites into 2,300 small pieces of hazardous space junk. There have been about 5,000 rocket launches since the space age began in the 1950s. Countries have placed almost 9,000 satellites in orbit. 4,700 are still in space, but only about 2,000 are still working. Surveillance networks operated by the United States, Europe, and other nations estimate there are 29,000 pieces of debris that are 10 centimeters in diameter or larger in orbit. Scientists know where most of them are, but not all of them. With the increase of launches, currently they're estimating that there's 70 to 90 of them each year, the probability of some catastrophic collision grows higher every year. The United States depends on satellites for communication, Earth observations, military, navigation, weather forecasting. That's why satellite launches, especially those carrying recent clusters of CubeSat vehicles, those are roughly the size of a half-gallon milk carton. They're proliferating every year. An Indian-made rocket called, well, it doesn't matter what it's called. They launched 104 of those satellites in February 2017. It was a world record for India and a milestone for U.S. companies and institutions, which built 96 of the orbiters. In space, the velocity of even a tiny orbiting object can cause substantial damage. The impact of a piece of debris with a 10-centimeter diameter, that's roughly the size of a softball, would most likely catastrophically disintegrate the target. The European Space Agency said that in 2016, the solar panel of a major European satellite was nearly destroyed. The object that hit it had a one-centimeter diameter, a dime-sized piece of space junk. NASA and space agencies of other nations have approved rules to attempt to limit the damage by requiring that new orbiting vehicles live a maximum of 25 years. After that, they must have orbits or thrusters that tilt them back towards Earth in what are called graveyard disposable orbits. When the satellites enter that area, they burn up. So far, according to the European Space Agency, there have been poor results and that long-term growth of space junk is likely. NASA and European agencies have done studies how they might actively remove debris with space missions that can guide 
five or ten of the most dangerous pieces into the graveyard path. The UK Space Agency wants to hear from anyone with novel ideas how to track all the pieces of debris moving in orbit. Moreover, their space catalog, spacetrack.org, only tracks objects that are 10 centimeters in diameter at a minimum. There's up to 500,000 pieces of space debris between 1 and 10 centimeters in space. That's according to NASA. A terrible possibility of this scenario came to Hollywood in the 2013 movie Gravity. The opening scene depicts Earth's orbit rapidly filling with debris after a missile strike. In the movie, everything happens right away, like a nuclear chain reaction. But in reality, it would happen more like climate change, a long, slow accumulation of debris over decades that would result in really big impacts. As for cleaning up the junk, new technology has not yet been tested in space. There's been demonstrations with magnets in Japan and deployable nets in England, in December, the European Agency commissioned the very first orbital debris cleanup mission, called Clear Space One. Their plan is to launch a multi-armed robot in 2025 to scoop up a chunk of old European rocket, a mission estimated to cost $130 bucks. The debris and the cleanup robot would self-destruct upon re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. The UK Space Agency wants to hear from anyone with novel ideas on how to track all the pieces of debris now moving around in orbit, and they've offered one million pounds in grants for anyone who can come up with a good solution. Ideas range from nets, harpoons, even lasers. Do you have the magic answer? If we don't do something soon, we'll be trapped here on Earth. There'll be so much debris, we won't be able to launch anything out into space. Do you remember that old saying, there's gold in their hills. That was a famous line spoken by Mulberry Sellers, a character in the 1892 novel The American Claimant by American humorist and writer Mark Twain. It's not gold the world is looking for on the moon, but mining lunar rocks and subsurface water that can be converted to rocket fuel. That's the goal. But it's not necessarily for shipping those minerals back to Earth. In April of this year, President Orange signed an executive order to support mining the moon and tap asteroid resources. The Artemis Accords, named after the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's new Artemis Moon Program, propose safety zones that would surround future moon bases to prevent damage or interference from rival countries or companies operating in close proximity. Sounds like Star Wars. The pact also claims to provide a framework under international law for companies to own the resources they mine. Artemis aims to land two astronauts on the moon in 2024 and establish a sustainable human presence on and around Earth's nearest neighbor, hopefully by 2028. These lunar resources are keys to Artemis's grand ambitions. Artemis is supposed to help NASA and its partners learn how to support astronauts in deep space for long stretches like if we ever come to Mars. NASA wants to do that in the 2030s. President Clorox wants the United States to start mining the moon for minerals right away. The president recently signed an executive order stating America has the right to explore and use resources from outer space. The order also said the United States did not see space as a common area and didn't need permission from international agreements to get started. Why does he want to mine in space and what are the benefits? 
According to space journalist Sarah Crudis, imagine we come so far we need a space journalist. Ms. Crudis said mining the moon will help humans travel further in space, like Mars. She said the moon can become an intergalactic petrol station because it has the resources needed for rocket fuel, like hydrogen and oxygen. Having a petrol station in space means rockets can travel further into space before worrying about running out of fuel. One of the reasons behind the president's decision to mine the moon could be a lack of access to minerals on Earth compared to other countries like China and Russia. What elements would be extracted from the moon that would be worth the cost and risk to human life? Well, here's a list of four possible reasons. Scientists need to determine how much water is really frozen within the moon's polar craters that could be converted to rocket fuel. Helium-3. There's not a lot of helium-3 on Earth. Hauling it back from the moon could provide still-to-be-built nuclear fusion reactors here on Earth. It's possible helium-3 and other solar wind ions like hydrogen might be in higher abundance near the lunar poles. The moon could contain concentrations of rare earth elements like uranium and thorium, other useful minerals that we're not aware of. Metallic asteroids have pummeled the moon over eons. Lunar prospectors could find valuable platinum group elements in the crash sites. Great. Does anyone really believe that when the mining operation on the moon is done, they'll clean up their mess? Who's going to inspect the work site? Experts predict lunar mining is still at least 10 or 15 years away. We've always reached to the stars to explore. So I guess mining the moon isn't quite as outrageous as it sounds. Except we have no track record of doing these things without causing disasters. So why would we think the people in charge would treat the moon or any foreign object better than how we treat our own Earth? Now let's talk about SpaceX. On June 3rd, SpaceX brought 60 new Starlink satellites into space. Those are the spacecraft clusters that are designed to cover the planet with broadband internet. SpaceX has plans to build a constellation of Starlink satellites, up to 12,000 of them. The project is designed to provide high-speed internet service to customers all over the world, particularly those in remote areas. The constellation will consist of satellites working in combination with ground transceivers. SpaceX also plans to sell some of the satellites for military, scientific, or exploratory purposes. There is now a total of 482 Starlink satellites in orbit. Each Starlink satellite weighs about 500 pounds and is roughly the size of a kitchen table. This new push to fill space with more satellites is making dark sky observation more difficult. And Elon Musk promised to use new methods to keep light from, from reflecting off his Starlink chain of satellites. I downloaded the app Find Starlink a few weeks ago, and on the app you can get notifications when and where to look in the sky to see the satellites. A few weeks ago I did see it, but it wasn't the long chain of satellites I was expecting. What I saw looked like the space station, but closer to Earth. You can download the International Space Station app and get notified when the space station flies over your city. When I was a kid, my mother would yell up to my room and beg me to come downstairs and listen to a particular piece from his famous opera. I'd roll my eyes, come downstairs, and say, Yeah, Mom, that's really nice. I'd head back upstairs to the sanctity of my room, where I was probably doing something really important like watching Lost in Space. Now when the space station flies over my city, I yell to my children, Hurry, guys, 
Come outside. The space station is overhead. And they probably roll their eyes. They come outside and they say, Yeah, Dad, that's really nice. Then they head back upstairs to the sanctity of their rooms, where they're probably doing something really important like watching TikTok videos. I think this explains that saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Click, listen, enjoy. How about some moon songs? Space Junk by Devo. Fly Me to the Moon by Sinatra. I Don't Want to Live on the Moon, Sesame Street. Ernie sung that one. Man on the Moon by R.E.M. Walking on the Moon by The Police. And of course, The Final Countdown by Europe. I know they were headed for Venus, but I'm assuming they left from a future base on the moon. We must acknowledge one of the best-selling albums of all time, Dark Side of the Moon. Cat Stevens wrote Moonshadow while he was in Spain and witnessed a clear night. Seeing his shadow reflected by the glow, he wrote Moonshadow. What about movies about the moon? All of you know about Apollo 13, First Man, The Right Stuff. But what about a few obscure movies about the moon? In 1961, a big hit, not really, called Nude on the Moon. Scientist Dr. Jeffrey Huntley inherits a fortune from his uncle and invests it in the development of a rocket ship, built with the assistance of his mentor, Dr. Nichols. After landing on the moon, the pair discover a civilization of topless extraterrestrials, led by the Moon Queen, with telepathic powers. Enamored of Dr. Huntley, the Moon Queen allows the men to take photos of the nudists during their everyday activity. With their oxygen running low, the two scientists are forced to return to Earth. But in the process, they realize they've left their camera behind and have no proof of the aliens' existence or their racy photos. Another winner was Catwomen of the Moon, an independent movie made in 1953, Scientific Expedition to the Moon encounters a race of cat women, the last survivors of two-million-year-old lunar civilization, residing deep within a cavern in the moon. They've managed to maintain not only the remnants of breathable atmosphere and Earth-like gravity, the cat women wear unitards and have beehive hairstyles. This was the fourth musical score composed by Academy Award winner Elmer Bernstein. You may have known him from The Ten Commandments, The Magnificent Seven, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Great Escape, And then Animal House and Airplane and Ghostbusters, that's quite a difference in style. He also scored the infamous camp classic Robot Monster, considered one of the worst movies of all time. Bernstein won an Oscar and nominated for 14 Oscars in total. He won two Golden Globe Awards, an Emmy Award, and was nominated for two Grammy Awards and two Tony Awards. And one of his first movies was this dreadful movie about Catwomen on the Moon. How about books? Oh, there's plenty of books, but I'll give you two of my favorites that I read to my children. Good Night Moon by Margaret Wise Brown and Papa, Please Get the Moon for Me by Eric Carle. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. And our Climate Hero of the Week is Isatu Sise. Years ago, she stood at the edge of her village and looked at a big pile of rubbish. Amongst all the items in the trash were tins of food and tires, but one thing stood out. There was plastic bags everywhere. Mosquitoes swarmed over the bags that were filled with water. Two of her neighbor's goats were foraging for food through the trash. She shooed them away. Isatu had heard that people's goats had died recently. When the butcher cut them open... He found plastic bags knotted in their stomachs. That was in 1997. 
and 25-year-old Isatu Sise was taking a walk through her village in the center of Gambia, the smallest country in Africa. Isatu was just 10 years old when her father died, and her mother was left to support the family. Isatu wanted to go to high school, but her mother couldn't afford to send her. Isatu's sister taught her how to crochet, and this gave her an idea how to upcycle the plastic bags, changing them from waste into something valuable. She would turn them into purses that could be sold to make money. She persuaded five of her friends to join her, and they started this new women's group. They collected bags from the pile, washed them, dried them out, and then cut them into long plastic strips called plarn, or plastic yarn. A lot of the villagers laughed at her and her friends, saying they were dirty for digging around in the rubbish. Men told her her plans couldn't work because she was a woman. She was too young to be a leader. Ah, but she persisted. She believed in what she was doing. She's a climate hero. She loved helping others, and she loved the challenge. They continued with their tiny little business, and they expanded. They started making shoulder bags and cosmetic purses. They were earning money for the first time, and they were able to buy food and help their families. Soon, others joined them. Within a year, the community recycling project grew into 50 women, and she named it the Najao Recycling and Income Generation Group, NRIG. In 2000, she got a job as a language and cultural helper with the Peace Corps. She helped secure funding to build a skill center in her city. She started to teach classes on the subjects of gardening, soap making, and tie-dyeing, and the women sold things that they made. She learned about nutrition, gave cooking demonstrations on how to prepare meals, had vitamins and minerals to keep their children healthy. The women turned the food waste into compost for their vegetable plots. They sold scrap metal. They turned bike tires into jewelry and made colorful bags from old sacks of rice. They made beads from paper. They even learned how to turn tires into armchairs and stools. They made skipping ropes, leftover bits of plastic to stuff footballs so the children had toys to play with. In 2009, she got a job leading a women's project for the Swedish nonprofit organization Future in Our Hands. And in 2012, Isato won a Making a World of Difference Award from the International Alliance of Women. Isato has trained over 11,000 people all over her country in the dangers of plastic and the opportunities for upcycling waste. But her work has had even a bigger impact, because in 2015, Gambia's government banned the import and use of plastic bags. Where other people saw a problem, Isato saw an opportunity to create a healthier environment. But above all, she saw an opportunity to change people's lives. What are you doing to make the world a cleaner and better place? Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. It's time for another Climate Villain, and this one is Mark Morano. He worked with fellow Climate Villain James Imhoff as a staffer. He was also a producer for The Rush Limbaugh Show and he was the first source of the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth Lies about John Kerry back in 2004 and John Murtha in 2006. He has a blog called ClimateDepot.com, and it's full of lies and distorts real climate scientists' views on climate change. Mark Morano has no climate science experience, yet he continues to spew venomous attacks on climate change, like when he said, We can't afford action against climate change. It would damage our economy. At the end of 2012, Media Matters for America named Morano Climate Change Misinformer of the Year. Morano made a video on the Amazon rainforest. He said because it annoyed him that celebrities like Sting could dictate what people think about the issue. 
They vastly exaggerated the problems of deforestation, he said. In 2015, Murano and the Heartland Institute, more about them in future episodes, they traveled to the Vatican to urge the Pope to change his views on climate change. Murano said the Pope's claim that it is man who has slapped nature in the face needs to be weighed against the fact that fossil fuels have allowed mankind to stop nature from slapping man in the face. The more we develop with fossil fuels and increase our wealth and standard of living, the more we can inoculate ourselves from the ravages of nature. Fossil fuel use is the moral choice to make. Sadly, the Pope is aligning himself with the United Nations agenda that will limit development for billions of the world's desperately poor residents. Mark Morano, you are a climate villain. Let's talk about a social media star. Stephanie Shepard used to be the personal assistant for Kim Kardashian. Now the social media influencer has leveraged her large following to bring attention to the cause she's most passionate about. Alongside Max Moynan, she co-founded Future Earth, a digital climate education platform. Currently, their Instagram account has nearly 50,000 followers, and the page has resources that people can refer to should they want to educate themselves further on climate change. One post, for example, contains a list of documentaries on the matter, like Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, Ice on Fire, and Mission Blue. Another post has a list of recommended podcasts, such as Better World, Ultras of Energy, Drilled, I love that podcast, and The End of the World Has Already Happened. I haven't listened to that one. Sounds kind of scary. Shepard said that Future Earth is an attempt to rebrand climate advocacy. People want to get involved, but don't know, don't fully understand the problem, much less understand how we can be part of the solution. The purpose of Future Earth is to help people make informed decisions that not only better their own lives, but the planet as well. Again, it's called Future Earth. We are celebrating a special day for a very special lady. We're going way back into the time machine to celebrate a birthday for a woman who lived long ago. She was born in the same year as Herman Melville, Queen Victoria, and Walt Whitman. Not bad company. Eunice Newton Foote was born on July 17, 1819, and died in 1888. Eunice was an American scientist, inventor, and woman's right campaigner from New York. She was the first scientist known to have experimented on the warming effect of sunlight on different gases and theorized that changing the proportion of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would change its temperature. That was in 1856. As a member of the editorial committee for the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, that was the first women's rights convention, Foote was one of the signatories on the convention's Declaration of Sentiments. In 2010, retired petroleum geologist Ray Sorensen came across Foote's work in an 1857 volume of Annual Scientific Discovery. He realized right away that Foote was the first to make the connection between carbon dioxide and climate change and that her work had gone unrecognized. John Perlin, a research scholar in the Department of Physics, called her the Rosa Parks of Science. Perlin is writing a book about Foote to make evident Foote's primacy in laying the foundation for understanding the greenhouse effect. Perlin hopes to help restore her place among other early pioneers of climate science, such as Don Tyndall and Svante Arrhenius. Hey, wait a minute. Svante, he was the birthday boy on the second episode of this podcast back on February 28th. Here's to remembering the great Eunice Foote. Well, that's a wrap for episode 11. Be sure to tell your friends about the show. 
I'm grateful for each and every one of you taking 20 minutes or so to hear about climate change and pollution. I'm still waiting for my first listener from Antarctica. Come on, McMurdo Station, tune in. Hundreds of years ago, a man spotted the moons of Jupiter, and today we learned all about sending humans to mine our moon. A fitting tribute to my hero. Good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening.